So the honeybee brain has been quite well studied, and um, it is a, a brain that has a number of well-defined subregions with known functions for those subregions, and those subregions are, are very well conserved across the insect. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. And we'll be your host today. That voice you heard at the top of the show belonged to Dr. Gene Robinson, our guest for today. Before we get started with that, though, I have a short story to share. Uh, it's about my very first scientific experiment ever. I was about five or six years old and living in the middle of nowhere. We had streams and trees and huge open fields of uncut grass and dandelions all around the house. Sounds really nice. It was. You know, it was kind of boring there weren't any kids around. I was six years old. There were no children for miles around, and I got a little bit bored from time to time, mm. especially in the summer. So one day I was reading a book about intelligence and animals, and I thought, you know, hey, I live in the country. There are animals all around. I can test them to see how intelligent they are. Problem was, though, that I was six, and most of the animals were foxes or owls or birds or hedgehogs or badgers that either I couldn't catch or didn't want to catch. There was one organism, though, that I figured out would be perfect to experiment on. Bumblebees. <laughs> I mean, what's better for a six-year-old, right? They're these big, slow insects, really cute and pretty harmless. Even as a six-year-old, I knew that bumblebees wouldn't sting me. So I devised a, an experiment where I'd lie out in a field near a big patch of dandelions, and I'd wait for a bumblebee to land on one of those dandelions. And then I'd, I'd cut my hands around the bumblebee, leaving just a small opening near the ground, and time how long it took the bumblebee to fly out and escape. And then I repeated this experiment with grasshoppers, so I could answer the age-old question of which was smarter, bumblebees or grasshoppers, which one would take less time to escape the traps my hand made. Wow, Forrest, you're a born scientist. What did you find out? What did you learn? Well, I learned that there's a difference between a bumblebee and a yellow jacket. Yes, the sting of science. Painful lesson. Our guest today is Dr. Jean Robinson. Dr. Robinson holds a Swanlin chair and is the director for both the Institute for Genomic Biology and the Bee Research Facility at the University of Illinois. He is also the William Ahrens Professor of Integrative Biology in the Department of Entomology. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and has published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles. In the last 10 years alone, his work has been prominently featured by PNAS, Science, Nature, and even the Colbert Report. Dr. Robinson joined us to discuss honeybees and his work with these and other insects. Dr. Robinson, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Dr. Robinson is one of the most prominent bee experts in the world, and not just bees. He works with other insects, too. 
but most of his work is on bees and specifically on why honeybees do what they do. And what do they do? Why study bees? What can they teach us? One of the fascinating aspects of bees is their highly social nature. For instance, within a beehive, they divide up the labor into individual categories, which each bee playing a different role. So, um, Dr. Robinson, would you tell us about the different types of bees that might be found in a colony? There's a division of labor over reproduction. So, uh, there are three main types of honeybees, the queen, the drone, and the worker. The drone is the male, and the males, as far as we know, sole function in a honeybee colony is to mate with virgin queens. Otherwise, the males perform no other known activities. The queen is, of course, a female, and her main function is to lay eggs, leaving all the rest of the activities to the workers. So after you have the division of labor for reproduction, now we come to the workers, and they also have a division of labor for all of the different jobs that they do to uh, ensure colony growth and development. So for example, there are some bees that clean the hive, make sure that debris is removed, dead bees are removed, and maintain the hygiene in the hive. There are bees that act as nurses that take care of the baby bees, the larvae, feed them special food around the clock, and take good care of, of their younger sisters, the larvae. Then there are bees that uh, process the food, turn nectar into honey, pack the pollen tightly into the cells, of the honeycomb to have as efficient space utilization as possible. There are foragers that collect nectar and pollen outside and bring it back to the hive. And there are bees involved in defense, guard bees that patrol the entrance, and soldier bees that respond to a disturbance by seeking out the disturbance, the intruder, and trying to sting it. That's a lot of different roles for bees to play in a colony. And we know a little bit about how some bees end up playing the roles they do. If you have a male bee, you can be pretty sure that they're going to be a drone because that's what all male bees do. Right, and something else we know pretty well. If you have a female bee that's gotten a little bit of royal jelly, that stuff you might see advertised on a paper placemat in a diner, uh, that female bee is going to become a queen. But the other roles that the other female bees play. The workers, they can be nurses, foragers, guardians, or have a number of, of many different kinds of jobs. And we're starting to get a handle on how these roles are established, how a female bee comes to play a defined role in a colony. Here's Dr. Robinson talking about uh, what differentiates a nurse bee from a forager. Bees that take care of the larvae, the so-called nurse bees, they only do that when they're young. An adult worker honeybee lives uh, about six weeks. She spends the first three weeks working in the hive, and then she graduates and becomes a forager. So a nurse bee is a young bee, and then later on in life that same bee will take up foraging activities. So if you didn't catch that, age is one of the key decisive factors that helps determine if a worker bee will be a nurse or a forager. Age isn't the only thing that determines whether a worker bee is a nurse or a forager, however. Environmental factors can also trigger this change. When bees are young, working in the hive, they're fairly fat. They have a lot of fat. They use that fat as the basis to synthesize bee milk, or royal jelly, as it's called. 
Prior to becoming a forager, a bee goes on a diet. She loses about half of her abdominal weight, and then she is able to keep it off her entire life as a forager, even though she's out collecting food and interacting with food all the time. And we've shown that if we put bees on a diet prematurely, um, by inhibiting the synthesis of fatty acids, we can get them to become a forager prematurely. Bees reared on different diets have very different patterns of gene expression in the brain. Bees that are reared on a poor diet, a more deprived diet, look more like a forager. And that's consistent with our other results. So what a bee eats, how much a bee eats, how fat that bee is, these things, as well as age, help determine whether a bee will be a nurse or a forager. We asked Dr. Robinson if science knows how a bee's weight or diet influences this nurse-to-forager transition. Um, well, we've studied some of the molecular components, and it involves the insulin signaling pathway and some unique... So the insulin signaling pathway is a well-conserved ancient pathway. And then layered on top of that is some um, new biology, if you will, that specific... Uh, um, a novel with respect to the honeybee, and that has to do with uh, queen pheromone and a molecule called vitelligenin, which is also ancient, but in honeybees is put to new uses. Its ancestral function is as a yolk protein, and so what happens is um, the fat is basically turned into brood food, and this happens via interactions with vitelligenin. Okay, so now we have insulin, vitelligenin, age, weight, and diet is helping to determine whether a worker bee is a nurse or a forager. Yeah, but that isn't all that influences when a nurse bee will become a forager. In fact, there's a phrase that shows up a lot in bee literature to describe this nurse-to-forager transition. That phrase is age-related and socially regulated. As in, the transition from a nurse to a forager is age-related and socially regulated. We've already talked about the age-related aspect of this transition. Here's Dr. Robinson discussing the social regulation of the nurse-to-forager transition. In addition to the basic pattern uh, that I just described, bees are able to respond to changing colony conditions, changing societal demands. So if you have a situation where a calamity befalls a hive, they lose all of their foragers, some of the young bees will speed up their process of maturation and become precocious foragers. So this is obviously a social issue. The social environment, the number of foragers around, that changes and bee behavior, and actually much more than bee behavior, the entire biology of individual honeybees, that changes as a result of the changing social environment. Right. Somehow a social cue is communicated to individual bees telling them that the colony needs more foragers. You know, when I think of communication in bees, I think of the same thing that probably most of our listeners think of. I, I think of bee dancing. dancing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. That movie everyone has seen a million times starting in elementary school with a bee on a honeycomb making ellipses and figure eights and shaking her bud and wiggling her wings all over the place. Here, here, Dr. Robinson can explain bee dancing much more eloquently than I can. Bee dancing is a form of communication. When a forager goes out and finds food, finds flowers that are very uh, plentiful, she will come back to the hive and alert other bees in the hive to her find by means of the dance language. And the word language is, is used uh, advisedly 
in the sense that it's a form of symbolic communication where the bee is able to give distance, direction, and quality information about the food that she has experienced to bees that have never before been out there and give enough information so that with reasonable accuracy bees are able to go out and find it. Turns out it's about 50% accurate, which um, if you've tried to communicate with other human beings, 50% accuracy is pretty darn good. And so the bees are able to do that. It's not a reflex. The bees assess the quality of the food, and if it's a high enough quality food source, they will dance for it. Did you catch that one big word he used in that answer? Language. He said bee dancing was a form of language, and he gave a couple of reasons for why we should think of bee dancing as a form of language. It's symbolic communication conveying a multitude of information in a fairly accurate manner. Yeah, bee dancing conveys symbolic information covering a lot of information in a fairly accurate manner, but that ignores something else about language. We have to learn language. A baby doesn't enter the world speaking English or Spanish. We asked Dr. Robinson if bees had to learn to dance, or if it was just an instinct, like a baby crying. Some work done by Martin Lindauer, who, um, a German scientist who was a student of Carl von Frisch, who discovered the dance language and won a Nobel Prize in 1973 for this discovery, shows that bees are able to dance as an instinct. They are born able to dance. Um, however, many people suspect that, um, like many instincts, there's an interaction with experience and they may be able to get better at it. Uh, there's not a lot of hard proof for that, but there's some speculation that that is the case. But one thing that bees do need to learn to do that relates to dance is prior to becoming foragers, they take orientation flights where they learn where they live. They learn their address. They learn the position of their hive in the environment relative to prominent landmarks, the old oak tree over there, 100 meters to the left. They learn the direction that the sun is traveling, and they are able to then wire up a sun compass-based navigation system that allows them to use the dance language and give information in the dance language that is geographically and spatially accurate. So, okay, bee dancing is somewhat instinctual and somewhat learned. And that sort of makes us ask the question, do different bees learn different languages? So can a, can a bee from one colony dance intelligibly for a bee from another colony? How, how do they, can they interact between different hives? There are some dialect differences, especially with respect to species and, and some suggestion of differences at the level of subspecies or, or races of bees. So there are some differences there in how they scale distance and direction. It turns out though that as cool as bee dancing is, it is not the only way that bees can communicate with one another. Nor as it happens is it how bees navigate the path from nurse to forager. Bee dancing involves primarily mechanosensory touching type stimuli. Auditory stimuli have been um, uh, implicated and then most recently a pheromone as well, so a very complex set. And in general, we know way more about chemical stimuli than mechanical stimuli in the beehive, and that has to be seen as a real growth area. The one thing that we can say for sure is that since the bees live in the dark in enclosed cavities, that communication within the hive is not going to be dependent on visual stimuli. But bees use visual stimuli extensively when they're outside um, to find flowers 
So their color recognition, their pattern recognition is very, very, um, very, very well developed. You know, I want to interrupt here and say how disappointed I am that my image of bee dancing, the, the bee shaking her wings around and walking in circles, is pretty much never ever seen by other bees. It, it hadn't occurred to me at all that the hive was pitch black and that no other bees could see that. I, I feel kind of let down. But you know, Forrest, it's okay. Visual cues are important for bees, and they're actually kind of impressive. So um, let's get back to Dr. Robinson. In general, insects are known to be uh, very strong on chemical communication, and social insects especially so. So that's clearly the dominant mode, at least based on what we've known so far. So we have at least four modalities for communication in bees. Mechanosensory, visual, chemical, and auditory. Mechanosensory stimulation is also not the cue involved in mediating the nurse-to-forager transition. We spent many years looking for that cue and we found that it was a chemical cue, uh, a, a pheromone, a sort of a compound produced by older bees that influences the behavior of the younger bees. So if you remove the foragers, you remove this inhibitory pheromone and then some of the younger bees grow up faster. So to recap, we have a bunch of things that help determine whether a worker is a nurse or a forager. We have insulin, vitellogenin, age, bee fat, types of bee in the colony, and chemical cues like pheromones. What do you do with that information? Well, that's an obvious question, and here's one of the things that Dr. Robinson is doing. So our first experiment was to compare a forager brain and a nurse brain using the microarray technique, and we found that about 40% of the genes show differences in activity or expression as a function of whether the bee is a forager or a nurse. And now we've been using the most recent technique, the latest technique, where you're actually sequencing the RNA and looking at that directly. And we see the same kind of results. Let's go over what Dr. Robinson just said. He said he's taking a bunch of foragers and a bunch of nurses, isolating their brains and assaying the RNA contained in those brains. Then he's comparing the RNA expressed by the foragers to the RNA expressed by the nurses and trying to identify. Well, he's trying to identify a lot of things. That's right. Uh, Dr. Robinson said that 40% of the genes assayed are either up or down regulated differentially between the two classes of workers. 40%, I mean, that's a huge number. Yeah. And, and the enormity of that number indicates something important. The genes that are being up and down regulated are not just activating different sets of behaviors. There's too many genes for that. And they're not just responding to chemical cues. Again, that's a lot of genes to be being influenced by just one pheromone or turning on just one specific behavior. Instead, the genes are doing both. So that's one of the, the really important principles that we've learned about the relationship between genes and behavior by studying honeybees. That, yes, there are great examples in honeybees as well as other organisms of the causal arrow going from genes to behavior, but we've also learned, thanks to honeybees, that the environment affects the expression of genes and what behavior a bee is performing affects the expression of its genes. So that reverse arrow, if you will. So the nurse-to-forager transition is just one of many comparisons being made by Dr. Robinson. He's doing similar studies looking at dozens of strains of bees, multiple species of insects, and multiple classes of workers in those different species. And really, Dr. Robinson has to look at all of those things. Insects are very old. 
and flies and honeybees are separated by over 300 million years of evolution. That makes it very difficult to look at the small pieces of DNA that regulate the expression of transcription factors and try to get uh, meaningful signals as to similarities, evolutionary similarities, or evolutionary differences. We need species that are more closely related, that um, we can get traction with, and then a broad ladder to, all, to go all the way out to um, Drosophila to be able to get at some of these um, questions. One of my big frustrations or challenges, depending on my mood, is if you look at the ge genome of a fruit fly and you look at the genome of the honeybee, you had them projected for you um, in all hundreds of millions of their bases, and you say, which one is which, we wouldn't be able to tell. We don't yet know enough about features of genomes to know um, how the relationship between genotype to phenotype plays out. So this is a real growth area, understanding the relationship of genotype to all kinds of complex phenotypes, including sociality. The solution will only come when we have the genome sequences of not just a handful of organisms, but thousands of different species and thousands of individuals within some of these species and new forms of informatics to be able to start to make connections between genomes and phenotypes. Having said that, our first study, which we published in 2006 on this, showed that we can find um, highly conserved uh, regulatory elements that regulate, that are required for, promote, for transcription factors to work, that we can find many, fly, quote, fly uh, elements in bee genes that are involved in social behaviors. Okay, so Dr. Robinson has a huge problem or opportunity on his hands, and he's making headway identifying genomic sequences that are similar or conserved between different species of insects. But I have to ask, is this really news? Scientists find conserved sequences all over the place when comparing species. Yeah, but remember that these genomic sequences are only one part of Dr. Robinson's work. As we've seen, he's very interested in behavior. I think we, we can use this as a starting point and then look for similar molecular roots of social behavior in vertebrate species and then begin to address this question. There may be some common molecular mechanisms that have been used repeatedly in evolution uh, to give rise to sociality, and it's an open question. So I think that's a real growth area in the field to look for those universals, if they exist, as well as the species-specific mechanisms. So Dr. Robinson has identified genetic sequences that are common between species and hopes that these loci may be informative with respect to behavior. But he doesn't just hope that he'll be able to make these connections. He's already started to make them. One of the first genes that we found that uh, regulates division of labor in honeybees, actually we got the idea to look at that gene from its role in Drosophila. And now other labs have shown its involvement in ant and wasp societies. The gene is called the foraging gene, and it was discovered in the laboratory of Marla Sokolowski at the University of Toronto. And in flies, it gives rise genetically to two different types of flies, sitters and rovers. Sitters will expend much less energy obtaining food, whereas rovers, as the name suggests, will be more active in obtaining their food. We found in honeybees not a genetic difference 
but rather a developmental difference in the gene. That is, when the bees are young, nurse bees, the expression of the gene is low, but then that same bee can grow up and become a forager, and the expression of that gene at that point in the brain is higher. And when we treat the, the nurse bee, the young bee, with a form of treatment that can potentiate that molecular pathway that the foraging gene represents and is part of, we can cause early foraging. So hopefully you caught that we tied this part of the interview back a few minutes ago talking about the nurse to forager transition. We had a whole string of different characteristics that could influence when a nurse bee became a forager. Now we can add this foraging gene to that litany. So hopefully experiments like the one that found the foraging gene may also be able to be translated to other species of insects as well. They have evolved remarkably similar patterns of social organization independently. Eusociality, the highest level of, of sociality, where you have this division of labor for reproduction between queens and workers, evolved independently at least a dozen times. And yet there are remarkably similar aspects of the social organizations of these species. It's still very early days, but we do see some common themes already. There are some genes that seem to be involved in regulating social behavior across these disparate insect societies, um, suggesting that there may be some common roots to sociality. And then at the same time, we fully expect that as sociogenomics becomes uh, an even larger science and we have more genomic information for more species, that we will undoubtedly find species-specific mechanisms as well. So ants, wasps, bees, and termites are all social insects. And experiments like the one that found the foraging gene may be able to shed light on these different insects from one species to another. But there are examples of sequence convergence between Drosophila, fruit flies, and bees. And we know that genes found in fruit flies have a predictable impact on social behavior in bees. We just saw that with the foraging gene. We also know that similar stories exist across multiple species of eusocial insects. Again, from termites to ants to wasps to bees. Right. But we wondered, can this work on the genetic basis of social behavior be extended to primates, to our evolutionary lineage? It turns out that Dr. Robinson has done some work on this as well. If you remember a few weeks ago, Forrest spoke with Dr. Peggy Mason about empathy and social concern in rats. Dr. Mason introduced us to the idea that empathy an other-oriented emotional response elicited by and congruent with the perceived welfare of an individual in distress may have evolved by an expansion of maternal care. Now, studying the molecular or genetic basis of maternal care or any complex behavior in primates is incredibly difficult. There's so many confounding factors it's almost impossible. That's one of the reasons that Dr. Robinson, among others, is using insects as a tool to investigate maternal behaviors. We'll let him explain. The basic components of maternal behavior are reproduction and care. And what we see in the advanced social insects is that those two pieces have been separated. So um, in your um, solitary insects, you see both of those taking place in the same individual. So mom lays the eggs and also provisions, provides food. In the social insects, you see mom laying the eggs, but she has evolved to become an egg-laying machine, 
After she lays one egg, she doesn't provision, she lays more eggs. Honeybee Queen can lay up to 2,000 eggs a day, 2 million eggs in her life. That's what she does. It's the workers that provision. So you have the separation of these two components, these two basic components of maternal care, so that you see reproductive behavior in the queen and care behavior, provisioning behavior in the worker. So the idea, this was the idea of Mary Jane West Eberhard, is that if you see in some individuals in the solitary lifestyle both, and now in the eusocial lifestyle those are separated, that you have a modularity to the behavior and that in evolutionary time you can separate them. So maybe once upon a time you had a big strong temporal separation between those two within the same individual. So lay some eggs, lay some eggs, provision, provision, lay some eggs, lay some eggs. And though that modularity could be acted upon by social evolution to get specialists on provisioning, specialists on reproduction. In the honeybee genome, you cannot see those modules because they have evolved so far that these groups are, are completely distinct. That's why we chose a wasp species that is so-called primitively eusocial, which has a much more flexible and plastic and fluid society to be able to examine this question. Specifically, there are individuals who are foundresses, um, who start the nest, lay the eggs, and do the provisioning. So like single moms, doing everything. When their first generation of offspring emerge, those offspring now take over the provisioning and the foundress now becomes a queen. She drops the provisioning activities and she becomes a queen. So we examined the plasticity in gene expression that you see in that case and we found these distinct profiles corresponding to provisioning behavior in the brain or reproductive behavior. That was Dr. Gene Robinson. That's all the time we have for the interview with him. Dr. Robinson, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. The Grok Science Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to pursue an interaction in email form, you can email us at science at groks.net. Thanks for listening to us today, and if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For The Grok Science Show and... Joanna Rowell. That didn't go so smoothly. (laughs) For the Grok Science Show and Joanna Rowell, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, Charles Lee, I'm Forrest Goulden. 